0: Thanks for joining us. It's my great joy to welcome you today. My name is Josh Houston. I'm one of the pastors here at Dwell Church. It is February. Jeez, That went fast, right? January just flew by. We are continuing our sermon series on our core values. We're circling around our core values. If you don't like the language of core values, if that sounds a little bit too corporate for you, for some people, maybe. What we're talking about here is culture we're talking about here is, is what makes us us, which is why we're calling this sermon series for the month of February, This Is Us. Yeah? Anybody watch the show? I don't. <laughs> Those shows are just meant to make you cry. That's it. Maybe you love it. Maybe, maybe it's actually a good show. I don't watch it. This is us. This month, we are, uh, we are peeling back the layers on what makes us us. What's our culture? What kind of culture do we want to produce here? Who do we intend to be? And to do so, we're, we're circling around our four core values. Uh, we have four guiding cultural principles here that, that we choose to, to hold tightly to that are kind of core pillars for us and how we um, define what we believe in, define how we will behave in relationship. Obviously, as a church, we value many things, but we have four values here that we consider central for us as we pursue knowing Jesus and making him known. The way of Jesus... Come as you are, church as family and local and global mission. Last week, I began our sermon series on the way of Jesus. I encourage you, if you weren't here, to go back and catch it on Facebook Live or our podcast. Uh, Next week, I'll be hitting church as family. And the last Sunday of the month, Nick will be preaching on local and global mission. I am excited. I am thrilled today to sit, to receive the word as Jackie Gordon preaches on our core value. Come as you are. Come on up here.
1: Hi guys. So I'm Jackie, I'm one of the worship pastors here um, on the volunteer staff. Kind of do a lot, but this is my first time preaching a sermon ever. Um, and I was actually just telling Josh at the coffee break, I was like, at first, I talk in front of the church all the time, I sing in front of the church all the time, I pray in front of the church all the time, but usually the lights are always off and everybody's eyes are closed. <laughs> but now the lights are on and everybody's making direct eye contact with me, And it's a little, a little scary. Um, Let's open, us, let's open in prayer. Thanks, Gabe, for turning them on even brighter. <laughs> thank you. Um, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Just um, pray for anointing on the next 40, 30, 40 minutes that we spend here together, that um, this message that you've placed on my heart, Lord, that it finds a, a place somewhere, because I know that um, you gave this to me for a reason, and Lord, wherever it needs to land, Lord, I have faith, speak in faith that it finds its way there. Um, Please do not let me make a fool of myself. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> uh, so we're talking about our core value here, is come as you are. The meaning for this is kind of twofold. There's two sides to this coin. The first is uh, how we believe this describes God's approach to us. It means that we believe God meets you where you are. And he says, come to me as you are. There's no reason to be ashamed because he sees us, he knows us, and he loves us. The other side of that, in the context of us, and how we want this to define who we are as a church. It means that we wanna be a place where you can come as yourself without having to measure up um, or to be enough to be the right kind of person that you can fit in here without ever having to fit in anywhere else. It means, as uh, one of our founding pastors, Nathan Kolar, used to say, it's okay to not be okay. Just a little throwback for that. But in order for us to kind of think about coming as we are, we have to have a greater idea or a greater sense of who we are. So who are we? This idea of identity, self-worth is kind of central to this idea we can't come to God as we are if we don't even know who and what we are to begin with. So there's two ways to kind of look at that. There's um, who God says that we are, and then there's also who we say we are or who the world says that we are. So we're going to dive into a couple of those today. Um, I'm going to use myself as, as, an, as an example, um, as, an, as a practice of vulnerability, but also because it's the only thing that I can actually speak about with any kind of insight. I, general things are okay, but it just doesn't really land quite the same without the context of a real life. And I can't really speak to anybody else's life the way that I can about my own. Um, It's obviously not the only way that it can be applied. I promise if you think about it in your own context, there's going to be something that you can kind of hold on to and find. Um, So breaking down who I say I am, this is, uh, we come to this conclusion based on a couple of factors. I call them kind of characterizations, ways that we can characterize ourselves. The first are these societal characterizations, the things that we've come up with as a society or as a human race to take a group of people and put them into little boxes to compartmentalize and categorize people. These are the things that kind of exist already in the grand scheme of things. And then we look at them and say, that's where I belong. Or somebody else says, that's where you belong. Um, a big one here that I think comes up a lot more than others is like personality tests, which is funny that today's step two of growth track where you'll take a couple personality tests. Um, the timing on that is either very smart on our part or God's part. Um, Amen. <laughs> um, I always like to argue that these are not really an accurate assessment of who we are, rather, but of how we are. These are valuable tools to help us understand ourselves, and how we respond to any given circumstance, how we, inter- how we interact with people of the same or of different personalities, but they don't tell us who we are. Your results give you a better understanding of how you respond to things, but they can't tell you who you are. Um, again, as myself an example, one of the most common ones that I think everybody has taken and everybody wears their result as a badge of honor or as an excuse is the Myers-Briggs. If you guys have like 30 minutes of your time, it's like 100 questions. You can take it online and if you haven't already. I am INFJ, so it means I'm pretty introverted, um, intuitive, uh, I kind of make decisions based on my feelings and I am very judgmental. Um, Another one that we talk about a lot in the church or in kind of just the greater Western church culture is the Enneagram. Kind of categorizing people on numbers based on their strengths or on their weaknesses or how they respond to those kinds of things. I'm a four. Um, For anybody who's not familiar with those, that's somebody who just really needs to feel special. Um, The greatest fear for a four is that they would be insignificant or forgotten. Um, this all comes into play, I promise. Another one, I think the very first one that I ever learned was in kindergarten. Are you right-brained or left-brained? Are you creative or are you analytical? I'm left-brained. I communicate, my love language is Excel spreadsheets. <laughs> um, this can also include other kinds of characterizations, like what sports team you support. Go Rams. Um, your profession, your political party, your um, age, your gender, your sexual orientation, your, uh, your ethnicity, all these kinds of things. But there's also some fun ones too, like which TV show character are you? I am Monica Geller, to a fault. Uh, in fact, actually, the, if you can't read it, it says, and remember, if I'm harsh with you, it's because you're doing it wrong. Which uh, I think I may have actually said independently of myself. Uh, The second kind of way that we define ourselves, these characterizations are sort of the anecdotal characterizations. These are a bit closer into our real sphere around us. This is what other people say to us or about us. Um, It can be positive feedback, constructive criticism, um, or this can be just hurtful things that people say. The important thing here to remember is that this is based on another human being's experience of you. These types of characterizations can be very helpful if the person is trusted and if they're offering kind of a glimpse into the things about you that you can't see, your your blind spot, to help improve you, to make you better. Uh, But people can also be just really hurtful with absolutely no interest in caring for your character. Um, These can be kind of performance reviews at work. I'm often told that I am overly efficient. I'm also very assertive. Actually, I've been applying for apartments, and a friend of mine had to put in uh, just like a reference. So he wrote back to them, gave me, a, gave them a reference, and actually said, like, she'll always tell you exactly what she thinks, and that's very much the case. Um, this is also kind of the stuff that gets said in relationships, in the midst of conflict, or in the midst of just life, um, and that kind of stuff is where things hurt can hurt a little bit. I've been, I had just finished reading a book um, by a really awesome author called uh, Uninvited by Lisa Turkhurst. It's deals with the ideas of um, rejection and loneliness, and super, super good. Um, But she says in this book, we connect an event from today to something harsh someone once said. That person's line becomes a label, the label becomes a lie, and the lie becomes a liability in how we think about ourselves. The third and kind of final way that we define ourselves, these characterizations that we characterize ourselves with, are the ones that we say to ourselves. We have the most control over the things that we say to ourselves, but these are often the ones that we feel the most trapped by our self assessment is often the most critical. these are the strengths this is where we get a good a positive self esteem a healthy sense of pride. Uh, these are also where we can get things like arrogance um, or just downright insecurities. They often get a little skewed when we start to listen to the wrong voices, um, if you guys. We're here for this. Josh spoke a message at the beginning of the year about which voice you listen to um, in our series on discipline. If you want to take a look back, I think it's on Facebook and it's on our podcast. The things right in front of our eyes often look a lot bigger than they really are just because they're closer to us. It's like those illusions where people play with depth of field. Have you ever seen those pictures where it looks like somebody's holding up the sun? Obviously, the sun is a lot bigger than their hand. But just because their hand is closer to you, it looks bigger. The object, So it's kind of the same thing, just because these things are the things that we say to ourselves. They're in the foreground, so they seem a lot bigger. That's not always the case. So on the flip side of that, who does God say that we are? Uh, I think the best place to start here is scripture, because this is one of the most definitive. um, And I always think it's best to look at who God says he is. From there, derive who he says that we are. So there's a lot about his authority on the topic of who we are, And in order to first believe that we are who he says we are, we have to believe that he is who he says he is. Because if not, the whole thing is, um, sorry, another Friends reference, it's just moo point. (laughs) Um, So scripture tells us all this stuff in very absolute terms. And I'm going to go through quite a bit of scripture. I won't have the full passage on the screen. So if you guys want to get your Bible out now, we're going to kind of run through a lot. Um, Follow along in your app. If you guys actually have our church app, there is a Bible feature inside that as well. Uh, So in Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, this is Moses at the burning bush. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What, what do I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am, and he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. First glance, it kind of sounds like he's saying what his name is, and we do use this as a name for God frequently. But instead, uh, I like to think that God, this is God telling Moses who he is. I am. God is Moses asked for his name, and he responds, if you knew who I was, my name wouldn't be important to you. I am the authority. I am God. This is the first thing to recognize here as we look to his authority. God is. He's ancient. He is eternal. He's the ultimate authority, and from here we can see a direct correlation from who and what God says he is to who he says that we are. So the first thing, God is a creator at the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Also looking to Psalm 124, verse 8. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. If God is the creator of everything that includes us, then we are his creation. A creation is something that's intentional. Nobody ever says, like, oh, I created this, like, ugly thing. Because usually if you're not proud of something and you didn't do it on purpose, you don't use the language of creation. Artists create things. Artists, you know, nobody, nobody's just like, I created this, like, gross thing. You, in all of the ways that you feel you fall short, in all of your imperfection, are first and foremost counted as an intentionally designed being. Not just intentionally designed, but designed to be like God. You're not an afterthought or a byproduct of something bigger. You are the something bigger in the first place. So from that, if God is creator, that means that we are designed, we're on purpose. The second thing God says that he he is is he's a father. Psalm 68, verse 5, father of the fatherless and protector of the widows is God in his holy habitation. Looking also to Matthew, chapter 23, verse 9, and call no man your father on earth for you have one father who is in heaven. So if God is our father, then we are his children. Children are cared for, children are loved, children are raised and looked after. In an ideal world, um, and unfortunately that's not always the case on earth, um, but in in God's relationship as our father, we are accepted unconditionally. And being a part of a family is a place to belong. So if God's our father, we are his children, that means that we belong. Uh, also, as we go through these, these aren't the only things that God says that he is. There's tons of them, and I encourage you guys to kind of take ownership of this a little bit and, and dive in a little deeper if you, if you feel so led to. And the next thing God says, he's a shepherd. Psalm 23, verse 1 through 3, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He, li- he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters, and he restores my soul. If God is a shepherd, then we're his sheep. We belong to him, and we go where he leads us. We're the things that he looks after and he cares for. We are what his life is about. We are his livelihood. So if God's our shepherd, we're his sheep, that means we're valued and we are chosen. Next, it says God is our savior. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Psalm 78, verse 35. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. If God is a savior and a redeemer, then we are his redeemed. We are the prize that he has won uh, won in in his victory over death. He has cared enough for each of us to the smallest of us and counted us as righteous even though we don't deserve it. This is the basis of our core value, come as you are. Because intrinsically, if God is our redeemer, we are redeemed, and it doesn't matter how you got here at all. It doesn't matter where you are. In the pit, God redeems. In the fire, God redeems. In the pastures next to still waters, God redeems. So if God's our Savior, then we're forgiven. We're free. Um, The next, says Christ, in Scripture, says Christ is our brother and co-heir. Romans chapter 8, verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified in him. The process of resurrection is not necessarily easy. Uh, It means death to our former selves and death to our sin. And death is very rarely easy. That's what Paul means here when he says that we have to suffer with Christ. In order to be raised with the risen God, we must put some things down. The shared suffering, rather where Christ takes on our suffering, puts us in this amazing position to be called co-heirs, brothers and sisters. We inherit glory and we're counted as such. So if Christ is our brother and co-heir, we belong in that family. That means we're important. We're empowered with resurrection. We're empowered with this forgiveness. We're risen. We're not held back by these things that used to hold us back like we sang about today. Nothing's holding me back. So looking at both sides of those uh, coins, like where we define who we are, an important thing to consider is that we don't exist in a vacuum. Who we are does not exist in this static space. We exist in a space and time where life happens. Stuff happens to us. We're a part of history, and each of us has a personal history, a personal story to tell. But I want to argue here that you are not the story that you have to tell. It's an important part of who you are, but it's not the sum of who you are. So we are not the sole product of the things that have happened to us. This leads to a a victim mentality in a lot of cases or sometimes uh, a a different sense of pride. What we experience in life refines the person and the soul that is already there. Who we are is not the culmination of what what has happened to us. It is important to recognize the significance of loss and of success, but the act of losing something or gaining something is not who we are. We are not the sum of the things that we have or don't have. Um... I like to think of it like in terms of flowers, right? You grow flowers in dirt. So in this image, you are the flower. As a seed, you're planted in dirt, you're watered, you're sunned. These are the things that life does to you. This is the life that happens. This is the photosynthesis that you participate in. But eventually, the seed that's you breaks open and stuff comes out of you. You grow. The more you change, The more life, the more growth, the more different you look from the seed that went into the ground, but you're still the same organic genetic material inside that seed. And the flower is not the sum total of the rainfall. You can collect all the rain into a cup, but that's not going to make it the flower. On the same side, if you don't ever water or plant the seed, seed's never going to become a flower either. Imagine that a friend says something hurtful to you. You can allow this to stew in your heart until you've become bitter. You can respond in bitterness, and you can allow brokenness to remain in your friendship, or you can cling to who you are in God and respond in love. A partner who leaves you brokenhearted does not make you just a broken heart. Your heart may be broken, but you don't have to be broken. This doesn't mean that you've become an unlovable person, because loss does not mean that God will not provide for you. Again, jumping back into that book that I read because I really, really liked it. Um, there's another, she says something else that I just really st- um, struck me. She says, rejection has long ties pulling the pain of yesterday into the situations of today. What felt hopeless yesterday will feed a hopelessness into today unless we cut those ties. Running from the pain won't fix it. Pretending to be fine when you really n- when you're really not won't fix it. Avoiding future relationships won't fix it. Staying busy enough or working enough, or becoming successful enough, or accumulating enough stuff won't fix it. So why does any of this matter? It matters because the consequence of getting it wrong, of who you are, which version of who you are, who you choose to put up as your shield, can be pretty dangerous. It's important because our our identity should be in Christ, and our misunderstanding of who we are can lead us to living in a way that we refuse the healing power of the Spirit. It can lead to further brokenness of ourselves and in our relationships. When what the world says, what our past says, what our insecurities say, directly contradict the things that God says about us, we risk falling into the trap of the falsehoods of misidentification. We hinder ourselves from serving God to our fullest capacity. So what happens when the world tells you that you belong in this box? With all of these traits about the box. You start to believe that you can't get out of the box. You lean into the things that people have called you. You wear them like a shield against other potential future hurts. Looking to myself as as an example, again, just because it's the only thing I can really talk about with any kind of insight. Uh, Actually, if we throw that other slide back on our Monica Geller slide. (laughs) Um, Looking to myself as an example, I can be assertive. I can be opinionated and very strong-willed. If you want an example, you can ask anybody that's close to me. Ask Topher, poor Topher, sit in on a church staff meeting. These things aren't inherently bad if they're used for something that's good and if I speak with peace and patience. But it's really easy to get carried away and peace and patience do not come naturally to me. Shouldn't be much of a surprise looking at it, but I've been called a bitch more times in my life than I can count. And every time I hear it, it hurts. But the more I heard it, the more I leaned into it, into that kind of behavior, that aggressive stuff, thinking if that's what I'm going for, it's not going to hurt when people call me that. But the more that I leaned in, the more I hurt other people no matter how many times you hear something hurtful, it hurts, even when you're saying it to yourself. I limited my opportunities to be like Christ and show grace to people in my life. I impeded God's work, and I directly interfered with what he was doing in me and around me, because I believed the lie that aggressive was just who I was and that that was more important. But that's not who I am. Instead, believing the truth that I'm forgiven and I am empowered and I am designed, it gives me the opportunity to step out of this box that I've put myself in. Get out of the box and step in obedience. Obedience to the promptings of God and the urgings of the spirit are far more important than the small voice of our own insecurities. The lie is small and the truth that God speaks is huge. The lie is just a lot closer in the foreground lies right in front of us. It's coming from within us. It's surrounding us. But when viewed in the proper perspective of reality, it's tiny in comparison to the truth of who God created you to be. Just because you're quiet doesn't mean that you don't have a lot to say. Just because you're joyous doesn't mean that you can't express vulnerability or grief. Just because you're young doesn't mean that you're not important. When we let our insecurities stop us from being obedient, we may not do as God had asked us to do, but I want to reiterate that God's not going to be stopped. He will still accomplish what he sets out to. God can't be stopped, and it's a lot easier to just obey the first time he asks. If you want biblical reference, just read the entire book of Jonah, um, who got swallowed by a giant fish after being thrown off a boat because he was just trying to not do what God asked him to do. Don't be like Jonah. So we've looked at who we are through uh, the eyes of the world, who we say that we are, our surroundings, our past, ourselves. We've looked at who we are according to God, and we've talked about why it's important. But how do we reconcile those two things when they don't align? How do we reorient ourselves to an identity in Christ? Because we can talk about that a lot. But if we don't talk about how we actually get there, it doesn't make any difference. So I got three things to kind of remember because it's a sermon, and if I didn't have three things that I put up that you could write down, then I don't think it's really a sermon. I think it's just me rambling for a little while. Uh, the first one is to recognize the lies. When what the world says is uh, what the world says is not always a lie, just check the intent of who's saying it. If somebody's speaking out of love in order to build you up, it may be worth a listen. If the only intent is to tear you down or to hurt you, it is a lie. This can be hard to recognize sometimes, so I just recommend you ask God for help and practice. You're never going to figure it out if you don't practice. Um, In the book of Job, Job kind of experienced a lot. We're going to start in chapter 12. This is um, verses 10 through 12, 16 and 22. In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Does not the ear test the words as the palate tastes food? With God our wisdom and might his counsel and understand he has counsel and understanding with him our strength and sound wisdom the deceived and the deceiver are his he uncovers the deeps out of darkness and brings deep darkness to light the second thing is cling to the truth uh, i think scripture is a really great place to immerse yourself in it's not the only thing you can read other books i'm a worshipper so i really like music make a playlist of like songs that affirm who you are in Christ. Just listen to it. It's it kind of becomes a mantra, It becomes this thing, and it's really hard to believe the lie when you're feeding yourself the truth. Um, reading scripture, I know it's not the most exciting thing sometimes, especially when you're getting to a lot of like Old Testament genealogy, but there's a lot there. And just dive in, ask questions. Research the things that don't make sense to you. Pray about what you're reading. Pray for wisdom and understanding. The truth means a difference. Seek it out. In the same way that you are what you eat, what's inside your heart is just what you feed it. The third thing is surrender to God and take up an identity in Christ. Don't stay in the box because you think you don't deserve to be something more. This is hard. Not only because just the act of surrender takes a lot of strength and a lot of discipline. But because the idea of surrender is just really abstract, um, how do I surrender to a being that's not directly verbally asking me to do something concretely? What does it mean to surrender in the first place? What does that look like? Is that just another one of those cliches that we say as Christians, just surrender to God? Or we're like, yeah, God is enough. Cool. Thanks how do you do it? You say, God, I surrender. Oh, is that it? Is that all that has to happen? I don't think think that that's the case. Surrender is a choice in a moment. In my own example, when I'm faced in a moment where I want to respond aggressively or I want to control the situation, I have a choice. This person disagrees with me. I think they're wrong, but they think the same about me. Whether I'm right or not, I still think I'm right, and I have a, a really great skill um, and confidence to go into an argument ready for blood, I think. I could uh, actually wrote down here this <laughs> the, with the kind of confidence that could bring down Goliath without the slingshot. The first, I recognize the lie that I tell myself that I have to respond a certain way. Despite how I define myself, I don't have to be aggressive. I'm not a bulldozer in this conversation. I cling to the truth that I'm forgiven and I'm empowered with resurrection. I'm gentle and I'm like Christ. It's not easy. It takes work. But I don't have to respond the way that I think I have to respond. It opens my eyes to see this person as a human being saved by Christ and also a child of God. Because it's not just about me. God says the same thing about the, everybody. I surrender when I choose to act on that truth, and I can respond in grace instead of bitterness. I'm going to be completely honest with you. I get this right probably about 10% of the time. That means 9 out of 10 times when I'm given the opportunity to show grace and take up this identity in Christ, I don't. 9 times out of 10, I retreat in fear to the lie. But the beautiful thing about living a life redeemed in Christ is you always get the opportunity to make that choice again. It's not black or white, it's not pass or fail. I promise this one instance is not going to be the last time. Someone who's shy, who's always told that they're quiet, who believes that they don't have a lot to say, will have countless opportunities to speak. The Spirit may urge you to say something encouraging to somebody that you don't know. And if you don't do it this time, the Spirit will certainly give you another opportunity to again. A resurrected life means a constant dying to your old self, a dying of who you think you are or who the world has told you that you are. That is the core of what we talk about, come as you are. You don't have to get it right before you get here. You don't have to ever get it right before you get here. The only way to get it wrong is to not try. Let yourself do this as many times as you need to in a day to reorient your identity in Christ. This spirit will always be in pursuit of you. So we're actually, uh, we're going to call the worship team back up. We're going to spend some time just in response and thinking about that and exploring the idea, God, who is it that you say that I am and where does that differ from who I say that I am? Um, our self-worth is broken when we love Jesus, but we don't love ourselves. We can't bear fruit when we're constantly battling with resurrection. As Christ is trying to raise us from the dead, we're putting ourselves down. When we choose to believe our own insecurities and to stay inside the box, we directly fight against love and victory. We defeat the purpose of redemption and freedom. We all but ignore the power of the cross. So as we spend the next five, ten minutes, um, this is a time for response. It's an opportunity to reflect where you fit in this idea of identity, to evaluate what it looks like for you, to practice the exercise of surrender. Come as you are to the one who made you that way and lay down your own way. Step out of the box and into the truth of your identity in Christ. We're going to play a song. You guys can stand and sing along in that song. You can pray. We've got two people in the back ready to pray for you or over you. You can pray in your seat. You can sit there and do nothing. That's your time. Just do what you want to do with it.